Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. Well, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Jordan Goldstein. Jordan is a principal and global director of design at Gensler. Now, before we hear from Jordan, let me share a few highlights from his career. Jordan is an award-winning architect who has led the design of more than 8 million square feet of commercial projects in the U.S. and abroad. In 2015, the Washington Business Journal named Jordan one of the 25 top innovators in Washington, D.C., and has regularly included him on its list of the 100 most influential leaders in that market. He also teaches at his alma maters, the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Maryland. Jordan, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Thanks, Rob. Great to be with you. So I'm very excited to talk to you because when you first appeared on my radar, we were not talking about recovery of COVID. We were sort of talking about response to COVID. So, you know, maybe broadly speaking about this giant COVID disruption uh, and coming out of it. I mean, how is this going to disrupt the way we work? Yeah, it, Rob, it is, it is amazing. It's such a disruption to work already. At the workforce is basically migrated to the home. And the interesting thing I, I find when we look across the landscape is that it really transforms the work environment, but it sparks innovation and a level of connectivity that was so different from being in our physical office environments. Hmm. You know, and one example of that I would say is, you know, in the tech tools that people are using to deliver their work, really expanding the digital toolbox that people can pull from. And I think that will totally change the game after, you know, this when we emerge in a post-pandemic reality, when people have realized that the tool belt is now full of new digital tools that they relied upon when they're home now help them in their post-pandemic world. I'm totally with you. I was reading somewhere that, uh, you know, we've been talking about, you know, in air quotes, digital transformation. You know, your, your company, my company, we're constantly talking about digital transformation. Well, here it is. Digital is the technology and transformation is the people. We're doing it. We are. Entire organizations are running remotely and everyone's found a way to have business continuity, project continuity, which is just amazing to see. And, you know, I actually feel that it's enabled, you know, for me personally to work in a way that I feel like I'm able to connect with colleagues in a borderless environment. Mm. So how is this going to affect, you know, real estate? And the other question that's always on everyone's mind, is this the end of the open office? So as an architect, I am dying to hear your thoughts on this. Well, there certainly will be uh, impact on real estate, and, and I think it's too early to tell, but the open office is still alive and well and will be, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is, I think the open office gives us flexibility. It gives us flexibility to adjust layouts. So when we think about maybe a phased return to workplace, mm. that that environment is, in a sense, adaptable and flexible to be able to be transformed potentially for densities that change over time. The other piece of this is that, you know, in our workplace studies, we really found that people appreciate choice in workplace. So mm. by saying open office, it's not saying we're all working one way. It's saying that there's an opportunity for different work modes. And I could need, you know, task-focused areas to do my work while other people may need some level of interaction or training or learning that needs to happen. 
And all that can happen in an environment that's more fluid and flexible. Yeah, I think uh, you hit on something about open workspaces. And again, I think uh, I, I, you know, I work at an agency where the, the founder of the agency, Jay Shiat, was obsessed with the open office. And, uh, but the key word, I think, was flexibility. And uh, I think that there's something in that, uh, like you say. Yeah, and I think that in the short term, we expect to see people spread out across open office plans and, you know, skipping workstations if they're going back to existing environments Mm. or if they're going into new environments that were planned as open office to actually think very differently about how furniture is laid out, but knowing that you have that flexibility to move things around and adapt over time. Yeah, interesting. Now, do you think, uh, just, on, just on the real estate question, um, as I walk across Fifth Avenue, as I walk my dog and I see the Empire State Building. So, you know, here's a structure, you know, it's built out of, you know, during, the, well, it was right after uh, the Roaring Twenties, you know, through the, the Depression. So here's, you know, this economic meltdown in New York City with this giant, you know, wonderful structure being built. I mean, what's your take on office space? Like, are we going to need all this office space? And if not, what the heck are we going to do with it? Uh, It's a a great question. Our 2020 workplace survey that we had done showed that uh, a well-designed workplace, whether that's in an old building that's been readapted or in a new building, was still people's most preferred place to work. And certainly that was, you know, pre-pandemic. But I do feel like reading through, you know, different articles and certainly in the social media chatter, people talking about the need to interact with their colleagues. Mm. And and that, that workplace being an environment where interactions can happen and those collisions that, you know, spur creative thought and spur opportunities for innovation, I think those are still needed. Now, granted, they will happen in different ways. But, you know, the building that you mentioned for sure is an enduring piece of architecture. And those pieces of architecture are part of our built environment. And that fabric, I think, is something that we need to think about how we re-engage with our cities in ways that we can trust and feel comfortable with that built environment. Hmm. Well, before we go any further, maybe talk a little bit about about Gensler, because this is a very interesting company. And uh, yeah, please let us let us know what you're up to there. Yeah, sure. So we are a global architecture and design firm. We're actually the world's largest architecture and design firm. You know, we were 50 offices and over uh, 5,500 people. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I think overnight, we went from 50 offices to 5,500 offices, right? Because (laughs) everybody's in their house uh, working. Uh, So an amazing transformation for us. And I think one of the things about us is we are spread into different, you know, practice areas, different industries. So we've been in a unique position to see the perspectives on, uh, you know, post-COVID-19 design, not just in workplace, but thinking about retail, education, mixed use, uh, sports and arenas, transit facilities like airports. So being involved in design in each of those areas allows us to kind of take those perspectives and then look holistically at the opportunities out there to think about, you know, what is a post-pandemic reality look like and how do we design for that? Yeah, I think what's, you know, as I got to immerse myself in your company a bit and go through a lot of the material, what also struck me was just the inordinate amount of 
thinking that you guys have already done, you know, here we are, whatever, two months into this uh, WFH life. But, uh, you know, the thing has been <laughs> extraordinary. And again, one of these pieces that came on my radar uh, two weeks ago was called 10 Considerations for Transitioning Back to Work in a post-COVID world. I mean, just a kind of an interesting, hey, here's a free, you know, thought piece. But man, it was powerful. Yeah, thank you. I think we we got out early with a lot of thought leadership pieces and we're a research-driven design firm. So we had been doing a lot of research in these different areas. And, you know, immediately with the pandemic, we were able to start to apply different thinking to situations that we had already researched. So how would they change? How would they transform? And getting into that 10 considerations piece, we ticked through a number of areas that really gave us a chance to look differently at it in a proactive way. I think the goal of this was kind of what's the proactive voice in this rather than having to be reactive and feel like everything's happening to try to flip a switch. Right. Uh, so that gave us a chance to think about density, about phased workplace returns, and different scenarios for that. What does it mean to have essential workers come on board first and return? You know, how do we think about, you know, a shift in work and allowing for cleanliness within the workplace, thinking about, you know, how do we screen? One amazing thing, Rob, is that because of our global reach, we have offices in China. So we were able to see a couple months beforehand what was impacting, say, our offices in Beijing and Shanghai. And so that allowed us personally to switch from a work from home mode very quickly but now those offices, the people are returning to them. So seeing how they're adapting to that physical space and getting in and out of buildings has been a great learning as well that we've applied to these thought pieces that you mentioned. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, we're a global company too. So we're, we're watching uh, what, you know, what our colleagues are doing in Asia. And um, I, again, I think as I, as I think back to when I first saw the piece, one of the things that stood out to me on the, on the 10 considerations was just the idea of an isolation room yeah. that, uh, you know, we're actually going to have to start thinking about, well, if somebody, you know, is not feeling well, what do we do? You know, so I, I like some of that. Right. thinking. Right. And, and it's thinking about, you know, in an in existing workplace environment, how do we think differently about the spaces that are there? So as we think about a proactive return, how do we take, for instance, a conference room on a floor? and actually make that an isolation room so that if it's an, it's an enclosed space, uh, in many cases it has its own uh, HVAC uh, setup, uh, and you're able to isolate someone who may be experiencing the onset of symptoms and do it in a way that can then safely get them to, you know, out of the building, but not literally uh, disturbing a whole workplace uh, floor. The other piece is thinking about, you know, screening. How do you bring people in and out of buildings? How do you bring them onto floors in a way that's safe or safer, I should say, and allows people to still have the opportunities to re-engage in a workplace environment? So on this uh, screening piece, again, I thought, that, again, this was, uh, I hadn't thought about this and that's what I loved about uh, this piece is, you know, illuminating things that I hadn't been thinking about. Who would be like a partner on this? I mean, who, who's going to build and, and what form does it take? You know, is it uh, like a, an airport uh, screen, large contraption? Is it a, something you, uh, you know, put a finger on, like, a, like a, a touch screen? I mean, how are you envisioning what this device would look like? Well, it's, it's interesting you, you ask. I actually put a piece out there yesterday entitled uh, An Architecture of Optimism in a Post-Pandemic Society. And in that write-up, 
I went through kind of a hypothetical sequence of how someone would approach a building, enter a building, and literally get up to their workplace. And the interesting thing when I was thinking through that is that the technologies all exist. Uh, it, it, they're just, they exist in disparate universes and being able to pull them together in one recipe, you know, for an office building or a workplace setting is certainly doable. So you can imagine being able to, you know, as you approach a, a building, having, you know, screening right at the, at the vestibule entryway, um, such that, you know, those that are symptomatic are notified, there's notification right away. Uh, those that aren't proceed through. Mm. We have a project in Beijing that is actually opening up right right around now that the security kiosks at the elevator lobbies have facial recognition technology built into them. So it knows that, hey, it's Rob. Rob sits on the 15th floor. The security uh, opens, the gates open up, the elevator's called, it takes you right to your floor. You haven't touched anything. Hmm. So imagining that and recognizing that that's all doable technology to integrate together into the built environment. Hmm. And I, I, lo I love uh, how you're framing this up. I mean, as part of your process, how much of this is, you know, of course, you know, you seeing stuff very, very practically, but how much of this is, oh, remember what I saw in Gattaca or something I saw, <laughs> you know, reading Isaac Asimov? I mean, because I love right. how you've got a lot, I, I love your process, which uh, we're going to get to it on your, uh, you know, design response to a changing world uh, piece, but how much of this, you know, is just from, you know, you putting together your imagination to see these things and things that use the different, I guess, influences beyond the obvious stuff you find on the internet? Yeah, well, the beauty of the creative process involved in, in architecture and design is that there's such a encouragement to think of the inspirational things you may see, whether it's from movies or, you know, reading in books or, you know, in the world of art, you know, or even in nature and then overlay those to the realities of the situation that you have in front of you. Hmm. And what I love about you know, our, our project work across all these different industries is that every situation is totally different. So we can't apply any kind of template. It really encourages us to you know, come to the table with you know, certainly fresh ideas, but to really tease out the vision of whoever's sitting opposite us to think about how do you mix that aspirational with the functional needs hmm. um, and also the issues that are at play in the larger in larger society and weave those together for a solution that works for that particular audience, that particular client. And I think the root of it for us is believing that the power of design can really elevate human experience. And especially now when here we are, you know, sitting in our respective homes and dealing with an incredibly challenging and ever-changing situation, how do we look at, you know, optimistically elevating the human experience through design? I, I, I love that. I think that's really wonderful. The power of design can elevate the human experience. Perfect. I mean, it, it segues nicely into this, you know, this other uh, you know, website I saw, and I, I love the title, Design Response to a Changing World. Given this pandemic, I, you know, I, I've noticed 
both for myself and, and, and other folks I talk to, your emotions are constantly going up and down. When I read the, one of your pieces, I, w- I was in kind of a, I would say a down day, but when I read this, I thought, well, okay, this is wonderful. It was called The Architecture of Optimism <laughs> for a Post-Pandemic <laughs> Society. So maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, we, what you were thinking about this, you know, what you call The Architecture of Optimism. Sure, sure. And actually, it's, it's on a page on our site, which is uh, we're constantly updating with new points of view on the pandemic. So, you know, the impact that we're seeing, but then how design can certainly affect that. So design responding to a changing world is really the title of that piece of the page. And then there's all these different pieces on there. And the architecture of optimism is one that really came, you know, when I was thinking about it, It's how do we um, really get to the point of having underlying trust in the places and spaces into which we are, you know, re-emerging. And, you know, an architecture of optimism, um, when I think about it, it's architecture not for the sake of architecture. It's not to glorify form. It's really to express uh, purpose in design and do so in a way that promotes wellness, which I think we all can agree is really important now, and celebrates life. You know, so it's the idea that design can support what I mentioned earlier, the human experience at every scale and level of daily life. And whether that's rethinking a restaurant or rethinking a hospitality environment or an education or, or to our earlier conversation around office, that layering in that optimism in a way that elevates wellness, that elevates the issues that we're talking about, that doesn't make it feel utilitarian. Mm. but makes it feel something that is in support of life in that particular aspect of the built environment. And did you, when, when these, I mean, these opportunities show up because this is what happens in life. This is a pandemic. So now there's a new opportunity to think through with design. Do you feel that you, was your first instinct optimistic or was your first instinct, you know, wow, this is a threat. How do I mitigate? Yeah, it was, um, it was definitely more optimistic because I, I guess it may be inherent in the training of architecture, but uh, you know, I do find that architecture and design is an inherently an optimistic you know, profession. And it really is, you know, whether you are working on residential or you're working on commercial work or you're working on product design, industrial design, graphic design, it's celebrating life and design in a way that is trying to actually make something better. Mm. You know, it's trying to make a better home. It's trying to make a better office environment, a better retail experience. And that's, I think, what, you know, for me, when I think back to the crash of 08 and 09, or even uh, post 9-11, you know, for us, it felt like such a calling for how can design help society heal, Mm. uh, to re-engage with communities, and to feel uh, more comfortable you know, in re-engaging with your community. Uh, yeah, I think what you say is very powerful. And uh, I don't mean this to be funny, but I think the biggest opportunity is going to be airlines. You know, when yeah, you think about uh, an industry that has really been decimated by uh, this pandemic, how are you going to get people to want to fly again? And can airlines reinvent what flying is? Because what came, you know, into the pandemic was was, you know, not... Anything about what you're talking about. Yeah, and I guess it, it sets up, I think, probably a threefold opportunity. One is to think about the transit moments, right? Which is so, you know, it, how, what are the airports going to do to think through how the places and spaces that support travel 
are you know thought through in a different way. You know, we have a, a global aviation team that's working on different airports projects, and certainly now, just like we saw, um, you know, in different other crisis moments, it's a time to think differently about the travel experience and actually weave those issues into the design opportunity in front of us. So, you know, post 9-11, how do you think differently about security? Mm. You know, how do you think differently about all the amenities that are within an airport, you know, food and beverage and retail? And, and to your point, the second one is, is you know, the, is, is the airplane itself. Yeah. How do we think differently about that whole experience? And then I think the third is, is kind of the whole nature of multimodal, is mm. that it's not always just, it's not just the airplane. It's like, am I getting on a train or getting in a ride share to get to the airport? Mm. You know, am I getting on a shuttle bus to get to the plane or getting on a train, whatever. So there's a whole sequence that I right. think is, is definitely an opportunity to drive design through this and think through how can we recognize the need to make these experience, uh, you know, definitely ones that the public can trust, that they're certainly safer and that, they, that people can go through with greater confidence but that they are still facilitating the need for people to get from point A to point B. Very good. Well, I, I like the way you think, and I, and I want to unpack a bit your journey because uh, I want to understand how much of this is trained and how much of this is ingrained. So let's talk a little bit about your journey. I mean, did you always want to be an architect? Since I was five, my mom and my dad at the time were looking for a new home and they would go out and look, we would look, look at houses. And again, I'm five, so I don't really know what I'm looking <laughs> at. But they would come home and they would plop me down in front of a, 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 like a giant bin of Legos. And they would go off and talk about, you know, what house they just had seen. And I would start to play around with the Legos in my mind, probably trying to replicate what I had seen, but probably being very far off from that. But that really sparked a, a love of architecture and design. And, you know, since that point, the underlying goal has always been to be an architect and to be out there practicing architecture and design. So even in, you know, junior high, high school, you kind of had one eye on, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to design stuff. Yes. In fact, I would try to design stuff even then. And I would, uh, a neighbor's deck would become a project, you know, a, a, a shelving system would become a project. And it was, it was great to, to kind of tease out what does it mean to really design at an early age but certainly it wasn't until training in undergrad and grad where I got the kind of hardcore architecture experiences. And when you, when you, you know, started to go to school for it, let's say, you know, you know, in university, were there things that you were like, oh, my God, I can't believe it's this? And were there things where you said, oh, my God, I can't believe it's this? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, when I was drawing in like elementary school or sketching in you know, junior high, I didn't know it at that point, but I, I wasn't really that good. <laughs> it, it wasn't until I got into college and I did a, um, a study abroad program in Italy and it was all sketching. Like the, the classroom was the field wow. and you're sitting in front of amazing buildings and you got to draw. And I actually realized that everything I knew about drawing to that point was wrong and I had to rethink it with the help of obviously some great you know, teachers. But that really kind of taught me how to see differently which was a really great way to look at it. And I really appreciated looking at these amazing buildings, but those are buildings that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, but yet they're being used by the current society. Wow. So how is current culture adapting to older architecture and how is older architecture influencing 
the culture of today. So it was a phenomenal experience. And then a year later, I went to Japan. And so I went from like Western architecture philosophies to like heavy dose of Eastern. And my mind was like going through like doing a 180. And I realized that um, so much of what I, I had thought about architecture is really about seeing. Um, and how you see the world. And so, you know, from looking at architecture of the permanence of, you know, Roman cathedrals and villas and palazzos and so forth, to then seeing these amazing Shinto temples mm. uh, and recognizing that, you know, while the materiality and the construction approaches were totally different, they're both they're enduring pieces of architecture and they're supporting their cultures in very different ways. Yeah, and, and talk about, you know, two of the most inspiring places, Italy and Japan. I mean, incredible. And do you think, uh, is there a key trait or a set of traits for someone to have to be successful in architecture? Like what, you know, what should someone be like, you know? Who, who's, how, who, who do you see? Wow, they're very, I don't know, they're open or whatever. You know, what, what traits make someone successful? In, in this day and age, one of the traits that I think is really important is appreciation of interdisciplinary you know, meaning to be able to look at a, a whole variety of different things and try to find the common threads that can weave through all of them and look at that DNA. So for me, you know, when I went to grad school, I went to an interdisciplinary grad school program. So I'm surrounded by not just architects and designers, but you're surrounded by a whole different array of disciplines and realizing that those points of view are just as valid as mine. And what was really transformative, and I think to your question, what matters today is recognizing that the different voices around the table mm. and being able to be open to them and listen to them and weave those in makes the design solution so much richer. And it's more than just one person's design vision and design ideas. And I think that's why you know, I've been with Gensler for 24 years. It's that it really is an interdisciplinary firm. So yeah, I'm surrounded by colleagues around the world that have different perspectives, that have different skills, different training. And I love doing project work where, you know, you're getting these different minds around the table and we're tackling the problem and bringing all of our perspectives to the table. So I think interdisciplinary thinking is important. And then I think the other thing is just being a good listener, hmm. being able to listen, because in the end, you know, as architects, we're not solving for our own problem. Hmm. We're solving for other people's problems. Right. Hmm. Well, it's very interesting what you you know how you responded on that question because I think interdisciplinary sense of empathy, uh, the power of diversity, the inclusion, uh, the power of listening. I mean, these are skills that are the skills I think for today's world in general. Right, and empathy. You hit the nail on the head with that one. I think today, more so than any time in recent memory, being able to have an empathetic you know perspective on the world is so important recognizing that inclusivity, another one you mentioned, I think is so key. And when we think about you know, design solving for a post-pandemic world, empathy and inclusion are, so, are huge. To be able to have spaces that recognize that when we bring people together, that we have to recognize that it's diverse populations. We're trying to do it in an inclusive way so that we're not trying to say that there's a circulation path for one person that's totally different from another, that we do so in a way that appreciates and recognizes that the world has been through a lot right now. How do we approach design in an empathetic way that allows us to have architecture and, you know, and frankly, in the places and spaces 
that give us a bit of inspiration Hmm. and give us some motivation that we can go on. Very good. Well, we've come to the point in the show where you get to give one piece of advice. So uh, I'm going to give you two questions. You can you can pick one or both, but the one okay. piece of advice, and you know, uh, we've got a you know kind of a varied listenership. We've got uh, you know folks in the C-suite. We've got uh, some rising stars. But here's some questions for you on the advice. What would you say to people who are maybe apprehensive about going back to work in this post-COVID world? Uh, and maybe tied to your optimism, which I love, your optimism of, uh, of architecture, what's one thing they should be looking forward to in this new world? So kind of this, if they're apprehensive, you know, maybe what should they be looking forward to? Yeah, well, I guess the, um, the looking forward to is the re-engagement with our communities. I'm sure you're, you're similar up in, in New York, but like, I, I just want to be able to like go out and actually talk to my neighbors and do it in a way where I don't feel like, am I too close, you know, or, you know <laughs> right? But with that comes, uh, and I re- fully recognize and appreciate that there's the apprehension and the fear of, is it safe? You know, am I going to be comfortable doing that? So I, I think that a piece of, I guess you said as a piece of advice, thinking about how we approach re-engagement in a way that we do it on on our own terms and do it in a way that we're not feeling like we're being push or prodded to re-engage. So, you know, the way I may re-engage in my workplace is going to be potentially different than a colleague. Mm. But both of our points of view should be appreciated and respected. And, and maybe that means for that colleague that their work from home scenario actually stays a little bit longer where they're actually coming in in less time, uh, less time in the office and mine may be different. Right. But maybe that's okay because we've figured out a way to work already. You know, and back to the optimistic side of it is that the, the optimistic side of that is that we still are both getting back out there, right? And I, I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity as we re-engage with our communities that we think of, you know, the, the, when we were getting out, what got us excited about going to a restaurant? What got us excited about going to, you know, an arena? Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be different at first, but ultimately with time, the ability to get back to that level of of excitement and engagement. Excellent. Well, Jordan, this has been wonderful. You're an inspiration. Again, I, I love your line, power of design can elevate the human experience. And for the folks listening, I would urge you to go to Gensler, G-E-N-S-L-E-R.com. There's some brilliant thinking by Jordan uh, and, his, and his colleagues on there. So thanks for being on the show. Rob, thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.